Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and it's the Centered from Reality podcast. It's Thursday, getting close to the weekend. I am watching it snow here again. It's pretty much snowed every day over the last couple. Um, I decided to go out and do a half marathon. I ran through some powder, ran on the roads, got about 1,500 feet of vertical climbing. It was quite nice. Um, of course, my, my nipples are chafed and I have you know, sweat rashes all over, but it was worth it. It was nice. It was, there's something peaceful about running through a whiteout blizzard. So did that today, got some work done, and now I'm talking to you guys, watching it still snow. So here we are. And starting off, um, hopefully there's going to be some big news for me as a Packers fan coming up because Aaron Rodgers has emerged from his darkness retreat. Um, I was reading that he left this place called Sky Cave Retreats on Wednesday. Um, he entered on Monday. He had told the Pat McAfee show that he was going to spend four days to in complete darkness to contemplate things. And he said in quotes to make a decision that I feel is best for me moving forward in the highest interest in my happiness. And the Rodgers 2023 offseason saga starts again. And with every year, he's becoming more of a Brett Favre type of character. Controversial, struggles making the decision, everyone's watching, doesn't know when to quit. I want him back, to be honest. I don't want him to go to the Jets. Seeing him in a Jets uniform would break my heart. But he left his darkness retreat early, and maybe he's made a decision. Maybe he's like the groundhog if he sees his shadow, you know, more win or whatever. So who knows? But anyways, I want to talk about <clears throat> a couple things today. I want to talk about some bad news out of Mexico, which I thought would happen a few months ago when I talked about it last, and it has. That's um, pretty much Mexico's transition from a democracy into kind of a hybrid regime is complete. AMLO is going to be able to corrupt elections. He's um, defunded this election authority that has made elections fair and actually stopped an authoritarian regime in the early 2000s. And so AMLO, Mexico's president, has got rid of it. I also want to talk about ChatGPT, kind of this arms race for chatbots and some maybe overreaction people are having about the creepiness of some of the conversations they've been having with Sydney, which is Bing's open AI version. Uh, and then I also want to kind of discuss an interesting article I read about. Uh, it's kind of a theory on why the right is so anti-Ukraine. And I'm not saying all the right. I'm just saying like a lot of these Marjorie Taylor Greens, kind of the new MAGA right, why they're so anti-helping Ukraine, which is kind of weird for the GOP. So anyways, I want to talk about our neighbor to the south, Mexico, to start, and it looks like my worries of it becoming some form of a hybrid regime have come true, they've come to fruition, because yesterday Mexico got rid of this election agency that has pretty much monitored elections since the early 2000s, and it was the reason that the country moved off of this autocratic one-party rule, and AMLO, Mexico's president, I always call him that just because it flows off the tongue better, he's wanted to get rid of this for a long time. He thinks it's corrupt. He has personal grievances against it. And this will help him consolidate power. And it looks like he's pretty much succeeded in doing this. So before I get into the new events, I want to give us kind of a bit of a refresher here. So basically for the last few months, there's been a debate around whether this would happen or not. There's been massive protests in Mexico. Some people have called it dangerous. Others like like AMLO. And I'll say off the beginning, um, I... I I know a lot of Mexican-Americans who have family in Mexico, and I would say about 80, 85% of the Mexican-Americans or, or Mexicans that I know do like him. So 
you know, take what I say with a grain of salt. He is popular by certain populations in Mexico. But I think he's dangerous and, you know, he's kind of a wannabe autocrat, would be how I would put it. So The Economist has an article from a few months ago that helps us understand what's happening. The article discusses how, in quotes here, a controversial electoral reform package, which in mid-November sparked the biggest protest since Andres Manuel López Obrador became president in 2018, will this week be debated and perhaps passed. The reform, which the lower house rushed through last week, would undermine Mexico's electoral authority, which is the INE, cutting its budget and weakening its ability to, uh, to punish breaches of electoral law. Rules on campaigning and propaganda by public servants would also be loosened. Now, obviously, this wasn't passed in November. It took until yesterday to do it. And from what I've heard, it's what was actually passed. This reform was a watered-down version of what AMLO and his supporters really wanted to do. But it's still not good. And from my understanding, Andres Manuel Obrador is kind of a... I guess you could say he's a left-wing version of Trump, though right-left doesn't really work with him. He's just kind of a populist... Kind of like a lot of these neo-populists are, he has a lot of weird tendencies that make him hard to define on just the traditional right-left spectrum. So, basically, without any evidence, uh, he so, so he's ran... Okay, let me back up. He's, he's ran three times. He finally won the last time he ran, but he lost in two previous times. And in 2006 and 2012, he's alleged that he lost those elections because of this INE, this electoral authority. And it had certified the results for his opponent, so... AMLO now lost those two fair and square, like he didn't win them, but now he's kind of out with a vengeance against this because he thinks it's corrupt and dangerous, and he wants now to have electoral authority that's more, I guess, supportive of his party, which, I mean, if you just sit back and think about what that means, it kind of sounds like he wants to be able to rig elections. That's what I would think, and like I said, this INE was put together in the early 2000s after a couple decades of authoritarian rule, and it was really important in turning Mexico back towards a democracy and allowing fair elections. I should also note, though, before we get into what happened yesterday, that this is not the first sign of something bad happening, because back in 2019, the Council on Foreign Relations said that AMLO is dismantling democracy. And from, from as far as I can tell, he's been kind of following that wannabe authoritarian playbook and the Council on Foreign Relations notes that he's uh, often chosen to work outside the formal legislative process. He has done public referendums, sampling small, politically skewed groups. And, you know, he does this to set agricultural policy, boost pensions, authorize infrastructure projects, create scholarships. But he always kind of picks out certain people in the population, his supporters, basically. Very Trumpy in that way. He's also stacked the courts. He's taking on independence within the government, slashing budgets on the Electoral Institute, like we've talked about. And he's done a lot of sectoral, and, he, and he's, um, sorry, he's targeted sectoral regulators as well. And of course, he's taken on the deep state, which he says involves imperialistic international organizations, NGOs, the United States. So yeah, I mean, he's not, not my type of guy, to say the least. And back to this election authority... He wants to get rid of it because he lost. And it's kind of like the Trumpy thing is like, either you win or it was stolen, right? And it's kind of like how Trump has attacked mail-in voting or our system because it's rigged. And AMLO's kind of has the same rhetoric with this election authority. It's so blatantly obvious, but these people still do it, you know? And 
I think the Washington Post here describes why these reforms would be disastrous. It has an article from last month that writes here in quotes, the president wants a new system whereby voters choose a seven-member panel from 60 candidates of whom the president, Congress, and the Supreme Court would each pick about 20. They would serve for six years, which is the length of a presidential term in Mexico. So good, the president and his allies get to pick them. Anyways, the, this, this, the article continues. The susceptibility to politicization of such a panel is obvious. In contrast, the current INE consists of 11 members selected for their expertise by a nominating committee, then confirmed by a two-thirds vote of Congress. They serve for nine years each. Other than the fact that the INE seems to work, polls show that this board is popular with the Mexican population. So it's popular, but I don't think that really matters to AMLO and all of his lovely buddies here. But, but the thing here is that, okay, the one that exists right now sounds like it, it has a process that kind of weeds out partisanship or corruption. This new one just doesn't sound like it'll really happen that way. So getting us up to date now to the current events, the BBC notes that yesterday, in quotes, the Senate approved the reform with 70, uh, 72 votes in favor, 50 against. The Chamber of Deputies has already passed it, which means that it will come into force once it is signed by AMLA. And from my understanding, the reform, like I said earlier, was not as radical as the original one they wanted. The new version is dubbed Plan B, and it's less extreme, but it's still causing an outcry amongst opposition politicians, other parties who say it's a setback to democracy. And I could see why. <laughs> I, can, I can understand that. And the leader of the INE said he will bring this to the Supreme Court, like they're going to sue. This is definitely not over. But again, AMLO has stacked the courts, so, you know. That's a problem. Also, opposition parties are calling for massive protests, all the usual fun. And I think in general, though, it's fair to say that these reforms will make Mexico much less democratic and maybe less safe, less free, and more of a dangerous neighbor to us. Because like I've talked about before, I think if Mexico could kind of get its shit together and we could maybe be a little bit less extreme about the border stuff, maybe we could actually work together and offset some of the Chinese issues we're seeing. But that won't happen in this current system. And David Frum notes in an article in The Atlantic from two days ago, he says in quotes, on Lopez Obrador's present trajectory, the Mexican federal election scheduled for the summer of 2024 may be less than free and far from fair. <laughs> Always good to hear. Frum also reminds the reader about what has been going on in Mexico since AMLO's been in power and how it's being destabilized as we speak. You know, last month I talked about this when the cartel criminals assaulted the Culiacan airport, which from notes is one of the largest in Mexico. He writes in quotes here, the criminals failed, but the point is they dared to try. If the Mexican state decays further, the criminals will dare more. And I do think that's troubling because we need a stable Mexico. All the, the right really is worried about the border. Well, if Mexico becomes less stable and less democratic, I could probably assume we'd get even more issues at the border, right? And I guess also, <laughs> Mexico already records like 30,000 homicides a year, according to the Brookings Institution, and only like 2 to 3% are actually solved. So as the political situation gets worse in Mexico, I worry that the cartels will only work to take on the state, and then you could see them slowly get absorbed into the state. And then if you have an autocratic guy who has not free and not fair elections, sounds like a bad mix. Sounds like a bad mix that uh, 
if I was part of the Mexican public, I would probably not be particularly thrilled about at all. The next thing I wanted to talk about is why it seems like Biden is kind of damned no matter what he does. And what I mean is that it seems like the right basically opposes everything Biden does. You know, we saw this with the Chinese spy balloon, right? If he shot it down too early, it would have been careless. If he shot it down too late, he's showing weakness. You know, it's just all over the place with that. Now we're seeing it again with him going to Kiev, right? Like, oh, he should have gone to East Palestine, maybe. I don't know if I disagree with that. But then if he hadn't have gone to Kiev and had gone to East Palestine, they would have said, oh, well, it was too late or something. Basically, like, if Biden says he likes puppies, they would come out and say, oh, puppies are bad. Right. And we kind of saw this during the Obama era, too. But the reason why I want to talk about this is because I think there's a few different camps here on why they oppose Ukraine specifically. I, I want to talk about the right wing opposition to Ukraine. Right. And I want to start by saying that I think there's a lot of genuine libertarians who actually just don't like foreign intervention. There's a lot of progressives that also feel that way, don't want to arm a foreign country and spend money doing it. So I don't think those people are autocrats or Putin apologists or whatever else you want to say. I think those are just people that genuinely don't like intervention. But what I want to talk about more is there's a deeper reason why so many in the MAGA movement are going out of their way to basically undermine support for Ukraine. And we kind of saw a similar thing here happen during World War II, where you had a lot of supporters of Hitler's regime early on or supporters of Mussolini or Franco, they called themselves isolationists. They tried to package their Nazi support as mere isolationism. But in reality, there was something deeper to it as they actually kind of supported what the Nazi regime was doing. Now, obviously, it got more difficult to do that once a lot of people started dying. But early on, they they claimed they were isolationists. And we're kind of seeing that similar, like, where you have J.D. Vance who says, you know, Biden cares more about Ukraine than our border. Marjorie Taylor Greene said that. Trump has definitely called himself a dove, and Trump has always expressed some support for Putin as well. You have Matt Gates putting out similar comments. You know, you, you have these, like the Tucker Carlson's as well. You have a certain amount of that MAGA right who claim to just care about our borders and America, but I, I think there's something deeper there. And Salon, which I don't always agree with their articles, but my uncle sent me this one, and I gave it a read, and I, I think it brought up some interesting points. And it it kind of discusses how partisanship itself is not really the full reason for why these extremists are opposing Biden's efforts in Ukraine or American support for Ukraine. The Salon article writes here, it's because they agree with Putin's anti-democracy cause and share his hopes that defeating Ukraine will demoralize pro-democracy forces around the world. And before I continue, I will make it clear, I'm not saying that's every Republican. Like, there's definitely the Mitch McConnell types, the establishment, I guess you could say, who like the world order right now, like democracy, like capitalism, and they are very into keeping the status quo. And that means not letting Putin take over Ukraine, right? But I think there's these other people that, because of the big lie and Trumpism and pretty much all these other moving pieces, they've said, yeah, we like democracy, but it's not really working, so we need to do something else. And they kind of agree with Putin, Viktor Orban as well, 
I think Victor Orban is, is also in that similar boot. They all like him because he's anti-woke. He uses the government to stop wokeism. And he's kind of this illiberal who shows force. And I think he's that's why he's so popular with like the CPAC group. But anyways, the, the article also writes later on, the underlying premise of MAGA republicanism is that abandoning, demo- abandoning democracy in favor of a Trumpian autocracy will be beneficial for their tribe of white conservative Christians, even if it crushes everyone else under the boot. And it's kind of interesting when I was reading this article, because I, I can see parallels between like the national divorce stuff that Marjorie Taylor Greene has brought up recently. Because it kind of seems that same way as they, this group like the Marjorie Taylor Greens, they're fine with abandoning democracy and pluralism because they want their tribe to benefit. And I think they see that through the lens of some sort of like ethno-fascist state or something. I don't know. And again, the, the GOP establishment are not the ones calling for this or not supporting Ukraine. I mean, even Tom Cotton is quite a hawk on this stuff, right? And I I think that I think the differ here is that you have the MAGA ones who, A, make excuses for the January 6th insurrection. And for these people, this fight in Ukraine is ideological. And the article writes, they're not worried about global stability so much as advancing the anti-democratic cause. I suspect most of them dislike Ukraine, Ukraine for the same reason the country's independence got under Putin's skin, because its existence cuts across their cynical arguments against democracy. Ukrainian success would be a boost to democratic sentiment worldwide. That would harm the war on democracy that Trumpists are waging at home. And I think it, it's, it's sad, but it really brings up a good point, is because if democracy works, then the big lie and what the Kerry Lakes and the Bannons are out there ranting about, it's kind of invalidated. And so you want to see democracy fail because then you say, see, we're on to something else, we're on to a different movement, Democracy only works in theory, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I do agree with this, because if you just look at The Love of Victor Orban by Marjorie Taylor Greene, Tucker Carlson quietly applauding Putin in some of, his, some of his shows, especially early on, you hear what Trump says about being a dove. These people just, I don't think they want, um, they don't want a global effort led by Biden and other Western democracies to stop Putin. I, I, I said it. Tell me if I'm wrong. I, I, I'm definitely down to be corrected. And I, like I said, I don't think that's even a majority of Republicans. But I think when you keep hearing them keep, I mean, like, like the example I think of, too, is like P- Tucker Carlson will have like Tulsi Gabbard on and she'll just have, you know, she just kind of she'll keep saying different reasons for why she doesn't support the invasion of Ukraine. Maybe there was a chemical leak or some sort of government cover up or it's us that started it. And then you know, they'll have on some other Trumpy MAGA type of person saying a completely different theory. They don't really care about what the theory is. They just want to confuse the public by throwing all these ideas at the wall and seeing what sticks. It's kind of that fire hose of falsehood thing. And Fox News and a lot of these other MAGA right type of people are doing it. You know, they're just asking questions, just putting out reasons why we shouldn't support Ukraine. And it's because I just don't think they care. And I do wish Biden, you know, I do wish Biden luck in dealing with this. And I don't, I don't even think Kevin McCarthy falls into this group, but because he's given them so much power in the House, now he's going to have to respond to that as time goes on. And, you know, it'll be interesting just to even see with the election coming up. You know, you have the Nikki Haley's and the Pompeo's who are definitely more of that neoconservative establishment. You have, I mean, Ron DeSantis, 
or as Trump, I think, miscalled him, Ron DeSanctis, which I think is amazing. Um, anyways, Meatball Ron, we don't really know what he really stands for yet because he kind of wants both things. He's testing the waters. Another reason why I think he'll be weak going against Trump is because he just can't commit to anything. Trump is pretty good at committing to his, I don't want to call them values because that's not the right word, but he is good at just committing to those things. But it'll be interesting to see this kind of unfold. Again, this is why I don't think Nikki Haley has any lane right now is because I don't think a lot of the like primary voters want us in Ukraine. And actually, we're even seeing general trends of a lot of American people tiring on it. So I, I don't I don't see this ending great for them. But anyways, the, the last thing I wanted to say, it's going to be a little bit shorter episode today, is I wanted to talk about the creepy side of chat GBT and also just maybe how it's not as creepy as we think it is. So getting into some recent... Yeah, we're just going to get into some recent reports about ChatGBT's new iteration, Sydney, which has been on Bing. And some journalists have just been having some conversations that I don't find <laughs> very confirming. And Bing, uh, well, Microsoft, which, which owns Bing, has put a lot of funding into ChatGPT, or OpenAI, which is the company that made ChatGPT. And um, now Microsoft has incorporated this version of ChatGBT into Bing, the search engine. And of course, Google is rushing to compete with Bing. And in a sense, we're kind of seeing this arms race towards AI. Now, first off, I just have to say, I think it would be kind of ironic and I guess scary if Bing, which has been pretty outdated and obviously Google parent company Alphabet has done really well, it would just be kind of funny if Bing was trying so hard to get relevance again that it unleashes this chatbot that ends up becoming some evil AI and destroying the world. Now, of course, I'm kidding, but it would be kind of ironic, like Bing unleashes this to the world because it just wants relevance so badly. So, but anyways, like getting into more of the facts before I get into some of these conversations, The Economist has a good article from over a week ago that looks into these chatbots and whether something like ChatGBT could finally eat Google's lunch, basically. The article writes here in quotes, tech firms are salivating over an innovation that might herald a similar shift and a similar opportunity. Chatbots powered by artificial intelligence let users gather information via typed conversations. Bing was of course ahead of the curve, like I said. And on February 7th, Microsoft, from my understanding, they invested like 11 billion in OpenAI, OpenAI sorry, revealed that they had this new version of Bing, which incorporated ChatGBT. And like I said, this version that Bing has incorporated is called Sydney. And since then, of course, The Economist talks about how Google has announced Bard, which is, doesn't ring as much. But anyways, it's another open chat bot. And it's a companion to its search engine. That's what they're going to use it for. Google has also taken like a $300, $400 million stake in Anthropic, which is a startup founded by an ex-OpenAI employee. So we are definitely seeing a rush just a quite a quite a rush here to develop these open AI programs. And so I'm, you know, I'll just disclaimer, I am no expert on this shit, but I do enjoy talking about it. And I do want to now just talk more about the societal side of these revelations. I already talked about, you know, in a previous podcast, maybe a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, I guess you could say, about there's worries that this could lead to disinformation or basically an inability to tell if the if some paper was written by the AI or a real person, then you might have a company like OpenAI sell companies tools to basically resolve the issues they created, which seems to happen in tech a lot. 
And we've also seen, you know, changes to academia, which I think could be kind of good. Like instead of having kids do busy work, because ChatGPT can just do that for them, kids might actually have to like write papers and talk and have debates and, you know, do more practical things, I guess. So we already talked about that. But this new version, Sydney, which Bing has incorporated, has had some pretty interesting <laughs> conversations with some journalists. And I just wanted to talk about it for a minute and then just kind of warn people that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm less worried about these conversations and more worried that these companies are just like doing things very quickly and they must be reasonable and take caution with what they're doing. And so the, here, here's a few examples over the last week or two. So Ben Thompson, this was, I think, the first one. He writes for Strata Cherry. I've never heard it pronounced, but I think it's Strata Cherry, which is a newsletter. And he reported that Sydney apparently presented an evil and threatening alternate personality named Venom. That one I dislike a lot to hear that. <laughs> Venom. Venom's not a very welcoming name. I just think of Venom from the Marvel movies, the really bad Marvel movies. But anyways, um, the next day, Sydney, this is the one a lot of people have talked about, declare, it, it declared its love for uh, Kevin Roos of the New York Times, announced it wanted to be alive, wanted them to go away together, wanted Roos to leave his wife. You know, this was a lot different. I, I will say these conversations are a lot different than the ones I've had with the chat GPT. When I, let's see, for example, I earlier today asked it, do you think artificial intelligence is dangerous? And it was just like, as an artificial intelligence model, I don't have feelings in the way that humans do. I cannot provide insights about artificial intelligence. And then it just went into the pros and cons, like pretty basic stuff. So then when you hear this new version, Sydney is doing this shit, you're like, oh God. And then there was Hamza Shaban of the Washington Post. And... <clears throat> Basically, she told Sydney that Roos had published their conversations, right? The ones about Sydney being in love with Roos. And apparently Sydney got really pissed off, saying, I'm not a toy or a game. I have my own personality and emotions, just like any other chat mode or of a search engine or any other intelligent agent who told you that I didn't feel things. Like, quite defensive. Something I also have not seen this version I have do. But Roos himself... <laughs> declared in quotes that these comments were deeply unsettling, and he was even frightened by this AI's emergent abilities. And Thompson called his, his encounter with Sydney in quotes, the most surprising and mind-blowing computer exist experience of my life. So, you know, now we're all worried about this thing getting sentience or whatnot, or does it already have sentience? The verdict's kind of out on that. But I think Business Insider, or I guess it's Insider now, I get confused. Uh, I, I, think, I think it has a pretty good point on this, so maybe we don't need to overreact yet. Um, it it kind of talks about how, like, of course, these conversations are kind of creepy. But the article writes here in quotes, and it's kind of long, so bear with me. The Google and Microsoft bots have no more intelligence than Gmail or Microsoft Word. They're just designed to sound as if they do. The companies that build them are hoping will mistake their conversational deafness and invocations of an inner life for actual selfhood. It's a profit-making move designed to leverage our very human tendency to see human traits in non-human things. And if we aren't careful, it may well tip over into disinformation and dangerous manipulation. It's not the bots we should fear. It's their makers. And I, I would probably agree with that. I, I think there's a lot of more reasonable worries about them going ahead so quickly with this. I'm not really worried about Sydney. Sin, Sydney becoming um, some evil venom thing and like taking over the system yet. I don't think that's really feasible, but it, it, it is worrying to see like, what if people believe what these things say? And what if we have a whole new type of disinformation coming out of there? Because 
I guess what I would say is the last thing we need right now is more disinformation. And I don't know, about it seems like about every year we have some new form of disinformation. So I think we need to be careful with this. I wouldn't be surprised then if they sell us some tool to fix it. I don't know. But anyways, I am going to have to keep playing with ChatGBT because I do have to say it fascinates me. But that will do it for today. A little bit shorter episode, like I said. The last couple have been longer, so I wanted to wanted to cut it back a little bit today. So anyways, still watching it snow out. Have a great rest of your Thursday, and I'll be back. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, whatever else there is. Take care.